Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're speaking with Sharon Batt, who is an award-winning journalist and the former editor of the consumer education magazine, Protect Yourself. Today, we're discussing her book, Health Advocacy Incorporated, How Pharmaceutical Pharmaceutical Funding Changed the Breast Cancer Movement. So, Sharon, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. So can you tell us, um, we're talking about breast cancer, and I know you have, a, have you had a journey with breast cancer. Can you tell us about that? Yes, for sure. Um, it was a while ago now. I'm, I'm always astonished when I think back how long it is, how long ago it is. I, it, it was uh, 1988. I was um, in my early 40s. I felt perfectly healthy. But I did discover this uh, hard lump in my breast, and sure enough, it was diagnosed as breast cancer. Um, I, you know, I was, you know, freaked out. I mean, it's, I think, typical reaction, and I didn't really know anything about the disease very much. I hadn't thought about it because I, I did feel young and healthy and thought anything like that would be down the road. Um so I had, I had, you know, I have to make a lot of very quick decisions when you are diagnosed with breast cancer, or at least you certainly feel you do. So I ended up having the, the standard treatments. Um, I had a lumpectomy, I had chemotherapy, I had radiation. Um, had a pretty difficult year for the following year, but then my health did gradually come back. And um, I've been fine since as far as breast cancer goes. I, I have since had colon cancer, um, and that was also treated, and I've been fine now for, it's been 12 years since that treatment. But um, as a result of my diagnosis and being as... Um, well, just the confusion that I felt and the lack of resources and information. I became very involved both in doing research on the disease and also seeking out other people who um, in my in my city at the time was Montreal, um, other women who had breast cancer, and we started a group, which is still going, a Breast Cancer Action in Montreal. So you said that you had to make a quick decision of what to do. At that time, where did you find the information to do that? Well, I went to the library. I found a book by by a woman named Rose Kushner who'd been a breast cancer patient in the States and had become kind of a, a patient advocate. Uh, that book I, I really relied on a lot, but, you know, I also read... Um, in the medical literature, although it's pretty daunting if you're not trained in, um, you know, medicine. Um, I talked to friends. Um, I just kind of, you know, I did, you know, I had several um, physicians who, you know, I mean, I found the interactions with physicians quite difficult. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, I, I, I had doctor's appointments so I was just floundering, really, trying to get information wherever I could. But as somebody who had been, a, you know, been and I still am a journalist, I had some research skills. 
so, you know, I, I did my best. Well, you know, I think um, anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer feels that way from what I understand, you know, floundering. Where do you yeah. get the information, especially in the 80s? I mean, there was, you didn't have Google back then. Yeah. So so where, where do you get this? And without the skills that you had, um, you know, they're, they're, um, it was probably very difficult. Now, what was difficult with, with the conversations with your physicians? Were you, were you finding you weren't getting the information you needed or what was happening there? Well, I, I mean, my surgeon I found quite hard to talk to, and, and his, his uh, secretary confirmed to me that he could be quite uh, sort of volatile. <laughs> um, at one point, we were sort of screaming at one another. I didn't really want to believe. I didn't believe I actually had cancer, and he was insisting that I had, and I should, you know, go right away and get treated, and I, I needed more time to to think about it and to try to get more information. So I felt he was pushing me. Um, my oncologist, who was the other physician I saw, was uh, was more sympathetic. I didn't have a GP at the time. I later had a GP. And it was also the fact that these were men and we're talking about, you know, my breasts. And I felt like they had a, a very, uh, I don't know, a, not a, an emotionally empathic way of relating to me, especially the surgeon. Um, so there were multiple areas where it seemed, you know, and they were talking medical language and that I didn't understand and throwing out words like, you know, we've got to do the staging without explaining what that meant. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that area has, the communications has been improved over the last few decades. <laughs> But um, you know, it's it's. I think it's usually it can be a diff- very difficult time. Just because you're also you're so feeling so emotional, and the doctors are trying to talk to you um, from their perspective, which is much more. Let's get on with this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know the the C word, um, cancer. Whether you know it's your colon cancer, your breast cancer, or anything else, um, is terrifying for anybody to hear. Um, because it is so common and, and so unpredictable. So I can imagine, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you were in a state of shock as well, as what it sounds like. So you hadn't got your head around it. And since it was an everyday occurrence, they just was like, why can't you do this, right? Yeah, exactly. I, and for you, it's like, I don't even understand what's happening right now, right? That That's, yeah. you know, I've been, I've been through this as a family member. It wasn't breast cancer, but there was in the initial uh, not understanding what was happening because so much information was was thrown at her at the time and she didn't even understand what the prognosis and the diagnosis were and then they were talking treatment to her and she was confused and I can right. imagine that, that that's very common and probably still so, is yeah yeah, yeah you're, you're terrified and so as soon as the c word gets said said um, I, I know from my experience she went like a deer in headlights and the rest of the conversation was null and void <laughs> right that's really typical yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I later went to well the one of the appointments I went to, I, I w- my sister was with me, and um, she she was. Uh, we talked about it afterwards, and and she described how she felt. The doctor and I were just kind of talking past one another, um, and you know, yeah, that 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 it was just very confusing. 
It's good to so, have somebody with you, but even that doesn't doesn't solve all the no. problems. They're, they're confused and scared too, for you. Yeah. So now, now your book, Health Advocacy Incorporated. I mean, this is about uh, this is more more on the political side. So, what inspired you to write this? This is actually my second book. Um, after my first diagnosis, I did write a book called Patient No More, The Politics of Breast Cancer. So it was also about the politics, but it was very hopeful that by women uh, coming together, forming um, groups in their community, talking amongst themselves about you know their experiences, that we could make changes. And then after, so I was very involved in the breast cancer movement throughout the 90s. It was a, you know, very, um, you know, kind of a new movement, but very energetic and, and picked up a lot of steam. Um, and I, I gradually became more disaffected because it became clear that a lot of the groups were starting to form partnerships with the pharmaceutical industry, and I felt that was... Um, affecting the advocacy, that it was pushing people to just say, you know, we want more drugs, we want access to these drugs. The drugs were becoming more and more expensive. It wasn't clear whether they were even that useful. Um, in a lot of other issues that women had been discussing earlier on, like, you know, issues like communications with the doctor and prevention and alternative therapies, they just seemed to have dropped off the, the agenda. So I, I decided to do this major research project trying to understand what had happened and how something, a movement that seemed so positive and so, um, uh, you know, so much in the good, a good direction of getting patients' views and, and um, incorporated into the, the conversation and into policy, how that got sidelined the way it did. So that was that was that was the what was behind my wanting to write the book. So let's start with with what got you starting your first support group, just so that we can understand where where that came from, and then we can talk about the, you know what happened in the future from there. Um, sure. So, um, yeah. It wasn't actually a support group. I mean, we we felt. I mean, I felt, and I sought out a number of other women who initially I didn't know at all, but just through friends and connections, I managed to find three other women who were interested in getting together and talking about um, about how we might address some of the these problems that we saw. Um, and so this is a, a small group of us in Montreal, and we, we all felt that prevention of the disease was not being addressed properly. Uh, to the extent it should be, you know, we kept hearing, well, nobody knows why you get cancer, and and yet, you know, this was a disease that was affecting thousands of women uh, in Montreal alone, and it had been around for thousands of years, and it seemed mind-boggling that that, that was not a focus of, of research. And also, um, just the information about what treatments were how useful they were, the side effects. We didn't feel we were getting enough information from the physicians about what the side effects were. Um, so that was the that was the be where we started. But it wasn't just 
we weren't really thinking about a support group where you you sit in in a circle and talk to one another about um, your emotional state. It was really seeking information and hoping that we could um, have a more public voice and get some of these um, some of these issues talked about publicly because we all felt like you know we have this, we all have these same questions and they're not being talked about. You don't hear them talked about, you know, on the news or, or in, in, you know, your, your just your local magazines and, and media. Well, I, I mean, now everybody does does talk about breast cancer, but I, I believe um, yeah. the 80s was a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so so was, was there maybe some shame around it or um, which I, I know can happen with some uh, women's issues or issues that are more private? I mean, breasts are kind of private, right? We don't want to talk about those. So uh, but what was it like in in the 80s? Oh, it there was, was very much um, a, a hidden disease, a private disease. And there was certainly some shame around it. And I think the fact that we were all women in our early 40s who, you know, had grown up in this more activist kind of environment of um, people speaking out and and the idea of, you know, why would you feel shame about a disease that just kind of hit you over the head? And also there had been the precedent of the the AIDS movement where men had come forward and talked about a disease that had been stigmatized. Um, I think that gave us, it was, it was kind of a, a role model that um, helped us think we've got to bring this out into the open. Um, well, you, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Let's talk about this more when we get back. Um, we're going to take a break. Um, we're talking today with Sharon Batt about her book, Health Advocacy Incorporated, and we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or send us an email to info 
at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Sharon Batch. She's the author of Health Advocacy Incorporated, How Pharmaceutical Funding Changed the Breast Cancer Movement. So, Sharon, we talked about when you started um, your breast cancer group um, in the 80s. And and how did you see that change over time? When when you started it, you had to also bring awareness to the the disease. Um, And then was there other things that came up that people wanted to talk about? Um, oh, sure. Um, I mean, people had different issues, but then there were also a lot of common issues. I mean, as, as I said, that for those of us who started this small um, advocacy group in Montreal, we, were, we really felt that prevention of the disease was not being given enough attention. For example, um, uh, you know, the toxins in the environment, known carcinogens that... Um, you know, presumably were able to trigger um, cancer or make it more probable that you would develop cancer. Um, That just didn't seem to be an active area of research. Um, So, and it was also just getting legitimacy for the patient's perspective in um, research circles and, and in policy circles. And um, we were actually quite effective, I think, in, in convincing people at the, in, the, at, at, in the government and in the medical community that um, it, would, it was not just fair, but could even uh, be raised important questions to have patients around the table when they were making policy decisions. So um, what were some of the policies that, that got set up? What are you talking about with that? Um, well, there was a whole discussion about mammography and whether it was a, a, a useful way. I mean, people used to say, well, prevention is mammography is prevention. And, uh, you know, we would say, well, no, actually, it's just trying to, it's an attempt, it's a strategy for early pre- detection. It's a, um, uh-huh. and um, prevention should really be not, you know, finding ways to not get the disease or lower your risk of getting the disease. So um, that was one area where we pushed. Um, there, were, uh, there was an interest in various alternative therapies that people were using, but we weren't able to um, find any research on whether or not they were effective, like people were taking um, 
remedies like green tea or, or different vitamins or um, something called Iskador. And um, doctors would just blow, you know, sort of dismiss those kinds of suggestions and even be quite, um, you know, angry with a patient for saying they were trying different alternatives. Um, but, you know, patients wanted wanted to know what whether there was any evidence that these treatments worked and, and you know, whether these really harsh treatments were um, important. So those were some of the issues that we, um, that we tried to um, have brought into policy. And w- one of the policies I know your, your group had was, was not to take pharmaceutical funding. And um, I guess we'll have to talk a little bit about some of the backstory of um, why not. And also, um, I guess we'll just start with why wouldn't you? Oh, okay. Well, that was uh, that was adopted by our group in the, or, or I think it was two thousand two thousand and one. Um, initially, there was, it, you know, there was the groups were quite small. They didn't need that much money. They didn't have offices or paid staff. Um, but gradually, the whole movement kind of took up, began began to grow and become more important and um, so the groups did need more money. There was initially some money from um, federal and provincial governments to help support the groups but then we were told in the mid-90s there was this um, kind of shift in government policy where they said we don't want to fund advocacy groups especially you know maybe we'd fund some support or, or you know where you're helping people in the community, but um, advocacy is not something that governments are going to fund. And at the same time, there were these new treatments coming out that were quite quite a bit more expensive. Taxol was one for breast cancer, Herceptin. And um, so companies were, would come around to the, you know, the different events that the groups were having or call up the office and, and say, well, we can help you. And I think it was because a lot of us, in our group especially, we had, um, some of us had experience working in the women's health movement, and we were aware of some of the, the, the difficulties with, you know, the birth control pill, different kinds of um, um, hormone replacement therapy for menopause, different kinds of treatments, um, treatments for stress and anxiety that had been overused and had been harmful to women. Um, and the drug DES that was given to pregnant women to prevent miscarriages and, in fact, ended up causing problems in offspring um, of, of the pregnant women. Um, so we were, in our sort of, our group had a perspective that was quite uh, wary and critical of the drug companies, um, even though many of us, probably most of us who had cancer had taken a drug and you know, might have been helped by it. We just felt like it wasn't a good idea for the groups to be taking money from from drug companies. That that was they wouldn't be offering money if they weren't trying to influence us. 
Well, I, I think that's a, an issue a lot of people do talk about, um, you know, with doctors getting, um, you know, seduced by drug companies. And then you'd be worried about um, a group like yours that's trying to give you the best information or your doctor should be giving you the yeah. best information. And and is that because of, you know, the money you were funded with or because that's the best information for you? Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what our thinking was. But what surprised me and, and upset me and uh, what I couldn't understand was why so many groups seemed to feel there was no problem. In our group, we were always pretty clear, and there were several other groups that felt the same way. But most of the breast cancer groups in Canada and, and in other countries that had a breast cancer movement, it was like, well, we need the money. They're willing to give us the money. We'll just do what we want with it. Um, and so that was where I saw a, 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 a divide opening up a split within the movement over this issue of drug company funding. And and so um, what kind of um, mood was that setting for everybody when that was happening? Oh, it, it was very uh, hard for the groups because, you know, people were having, you know, special meetings and um, you know, people who had worked together began to realize they were, you know, on different sides of the issue. It was, it really uh, was, I mean, I would say it fractured the movement. And so the whole idea of having these groups where people could come together and share their experiences, which might be quite different, but we could learn from one another, that came apart because, um, the, there was there was really no money for those of us who wanted to um, promote you know prevention and and um, other issues, whereas the groups that were taking money from drug companies seemed to be um, emerging as the the central voice for for patients with with breast cancer. Um, so it, it was it was tough. It was hard. There were there were real. Well, one, one, one woman I interviewed referred to it as a war within the movement. Um, th- that, you know, that's a little upsetting to hear because I know when you're, when you're sick and you're scared and you're trying to get help and then there's a war going on in your, <laughs> in your movement and you just want some information and, and then you're wondering, is this information accurate because you're being funded by, by this this company, um, it, that's a little intimidating as well, just not to know where to go, even though these places are set up to help you know where to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was a hard time, and I think it still is, it still is having, it's still having an impact, but I think for a long time it wasn't talked about publicly. I mean, the groups were talking about it internally, and then a lot of people, well, some people who felt strongly that drug company money should not be a source of funding just left the movement, or they, you know, they if they had jobs, they might lose their jobs. So um, it's just now becoming, uh, it's coming up in the, in the, in the news and, and, and becoming a more publicly discussed issue. And I think it's partly because, as you say, there's discussion about doctors getting money from drug companies and how that affects their prescribing habits. And people are starting to realize, oh, these 
groups are getting money from drug companies too. And um, so the focus is starting to... Um, the public, the, the, it's, it's, it's starting to come into public awareness as an issue. So if, if you're part of a, a group that has funding from a drug company, um, are they required to, to advocate for that drug? Is there specifications with that? Um, actually, that's, that's, it's a bit complicated. Um, usually, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people who were in groups that were taking money from drug companies, and they would, they would always say, no, there's no pressure on us. Um, but at the same time, they would be um, advocating for the drugs in, in their, um, well, maybe not. Okay, so there was one example where the group was really pushing um, for a specific treatment for anemia, which is something that you often have when, when you're under chemotherapy. They wouldn't talk specifically about the drug that the company that was funding them was marketing, but they would say, you know, go see your doctor because there might be a way of alleviating this condition. So it, they're not required to talk about it. They usually have a policy that they won't talk about a particular medication. But um, at the same time, if if a drug, if a new drug comes um, onto the market and it's not being funded, say, by your provincial government or your insurance company because it's so expensive, the groups will often put pressure on politicians to um, change that or they'll go to the media and say this drug is not being available. Um, It's not that they're being required by the company to do that, but they do it. And part of my interpretation is that the the companies have got to they've become familiar with the groups and they know which groups are prepared to mount those sorts of campaigns they don't bother the group that that I helped start in Montreal anymore because they know that group will not do that sort of thing so there's a selection about which groups they'll work with and they they work with the groups over a period of time the big companies do and so they get to know the groups they get to know the people within the groups they get to know the people who they're comfortable working with they also have um, there's a a relationship with um, public relations companies that do advertising for the companies and the, those public relation companies will work with the groups as well and help the, the groups put together um, and their advocacy campaigns. So um, I, I know you talk in your book a lot about um, some of the argument for for and against, and and um, a lot of groups, I mean, are set up by volunteers and people who are sick and exhausted or busy because they're um, just you know volunteering. And some people say, well, why why can't we get the money from this? easier place because it's, you know, being handed from a pharmaceutical company. Um, and, and so what what happens when you're not getting just the money given to you by a company? Where do you get the money from and, and what's going on there? Well, that's, that's difficult. I mean, it used to be possible to get money from provincial and federal governments. No, they no longer will give money for advocacy. Um, so groups might, there are foundations you might appeal to, 
Um, there are not that many in Canada. There are more foundations in the United States that will fund advocacy groups. Um, there, people will do fundraisers in their communities, like runs and so on. That sort of fundraising is really time-consuming, and it's um, it's quite competitive now because you know how you know everybody gets solicited by people wanting them to donate money for this or that. So there's a bit of a fatigue in terms of getting money from the community. Um, so it's, I mean, sometimes in a, in a group like a breast cancer group, there'll be somebody in the group might die and they might um, have donations going to the, to the group. So a group might get four or $5,000 from that sort of um, source, but I mean that's not something you can count on to keep your office open. Um, so it's it's hard, and, and and there's there's been at least one group in Toronto that closed its doors because they said we're not going to take drug company money, and we we just can't see any other way of of funding our group. The group in Montreal has managed to keep um, keep going. Uh, but they're they're an exception. Um, we're we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Sharon Batch. She's the author of Health Advocacy Incorporated: How Pharmaceutical Funding Changed the Breast Cancer Movement. And we'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You 
are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Sharon Batt. She is the author of the book Health Advocacy Incorporated. Sharon, we talked about, um, you know, that these breast cancer advocacy groups are getting funding from pharmaceutical industries. And what what does that mean? What are the implications of this happening within the groups? Well, I, I, I do think that uh, it it distorts the type of advocacy that's getting done. Certain issues become much more prominent in the, 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 this, the public uh, mind and the public dialogue and in the kinds of things that politicians feel they have to address. And other, other questions sort of fall by the wayside. And, I mean, another thing is that it's not often obvious when you look on the website of a, of a patient's group. It's, and and it's, the, the problems I'm describing aren't only... Uh, in the breast cancer movement, there's throughout the patient advocacy community, which covers all kinds of diseases. Um, the groups will usually have something somewhere on their website about uh, who donates money to them, but you really have to look. And so a lot of this, um, what I see as influence, um, many of the groups would say, well, they're not influenced. I think they're, whether they realize it or not, I think they are influenced. Um, and it can be quite a subtle influence. Um, it's not. It's not something that the public is really easy, easily able to um, uh, determine. Um, so, so it's not only that I think that the, the the advocacy is being influenced, but it's being influenced in a way that's not um, open and easy to talk about. So, um, are some of the policies that come into the into place with the groups? Um, you mentioned this earlier that they're they're advocating for to bringing medications into being covered. And they were in Canada, so some treatments are covered. Um, it is that something that these groups are doing instead of what you originally set out for is to bring awareness and um, information, just of a basic kind. Is that something that's shifting? Oh, I think so. I think it's already shifted. Um, and, you know, just to give one example, I had an op-ed in the, in the or a, a, an opinion piece in the Toronto Star a couple of weeks ago about, about, um, tre- about the advocacy that uh, one of the groups, the breast cancer groups, is doing in favor of getting um, rapid access to new drugs for, for people who have... Um, advanced breast cancer. So that's cancer that's not curable. Um, I mean, there may be drugs that are useful for those um, patients. The, one, the ones that have been researched, uh, they, they may extend your life for a month or two. They're very, very expensive, and I'm talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, but we're in, a, we're in a situation where there's a real crisis for palliative care for for care for patients who have advanced cancer or, or, you know, other terminal diseases. 
so so there can be a misplacement of resources where what patients really need when they're in the last stages of their life is is um, proper pain control, a support for their family members who are looking after them, um, you know, maybe maybe institutional care. Um, and yet we're talking about these drugs as if they're miracle cures and they're not. Um, so that's that's something that really, really upset me. Uh, well, you know, I think that that's part of the advertising of the pharmaceutical industries and and having done some research, and even in your book, you, you talk about this where um, sometimes we're being told a drug does a certain thing where it's kind of skewed a little bit that it does yeah, that or we're not yeah, we're not exactly. told the side effects. And that was a big thing you talked about is 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 when your doctor is giving you something, you're not told what's going to happen when you when you take it. Yeah, well, 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 you might be. I mean, I think a lot of doctors are are, are pretty. You know, they want to tell you um, what's going to happen, but they're also being influenced in many cases by by the drug companies and by the kind of information they're getting and and by funding from drug companies. So it's um, it's a very integrated kind of system that's set up with the the control that the, the drug companies have over all aspects of their marketing. Um, I mean, one of the things that's happening, it has been happening for the last 10 or 15 years is there's been a, a pressure to um, get drugs out into the market when there's been very little research on um, their long-term effects, which is I mean, that's when you tend to find out whether a drug is having harmful effects. You have to look at it in the long term, say over, um, you know, a couple of years. Uh, Often the the clinical trials or the tests that they do to see whether the drug is being effective is only um, extending for about six months. And so if it shows that the drug might be helpful, um, it tends to get approved. And, and put out into the market, and then doctors can prescribe it, but it's not really clear whether there are going to be real long-term benefits and also whether there are going to be side effects, which, which sometimes can be lethal. Well, yeah, and that, that's um, pretty terrifying as well to, yeah. um, to you know. <laughs> instances of, of treatments that have had to be, that have been withdrawn after they've been put onto the market because, you know, whoops, it's actually not such a good drug after all. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I read once um, that really the the true test of a drug, even though they go through their testing, is really when it goes out there um, yeah. to see to see what happens. Um, you know, it, it's that's the best control. Um, yeah. Is is it when it's out there? It's not, so yeah, it's not a control. Yeah. I would use that word, but yeah, yeah that's yeah. When, sorry, that's when you're really able word. to get an assessment. Um, yeah, that's and I think we're not we're not putting enough money or or setting up a, a strong enough system to track the drugs once they go out into the into common use. Well, it, it, it seems um, odd to me as well, especially in the healthcare system that we have in Canada, which is more socialist care, where a lot of it is covered by the government. Um, and 
and yet it is a lot of it is being guided by the pharmaceutical industries doing this kind of funding as you say i mean there is some implications of this kind of thing happening and if we have this socialist health care system it should be more guided by what the government and our doctors think are are the direction that we should go in i i totally agree and i think there is some confusion in in you know government circles in the way they think about drugs i mean it, it it's i mean the fact is that the drug companies are um they're a big financial um factor in our economy they do you know they do hire people and and pay decent salaries so there are parts of the country where um, there's a lot of pressure on politicians not to go too hard on the drug companies because you know what if they close down their you know their office and and stop investing as much in in research in Canada so those kinds of conversations go on you know at at the higher levels and the public doesn't necessarily hear that much about them but um I mean, drug companies have just become enormously uh, wealthy and um, enormously um, important politically, and they're able to wield influence in a lot of ways. So the influence they're wielding through the the patient groups is where my focus has been, but I think it's important to realize that's just one one part of their influence, and it's all it's all connected in a way that. What? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, it just it um, just with what you said, we're we're up on those levels. They're worried about the drug company not spending money in Canada. They're going to leave Canada. We won't have the jobs. But is that the right reason to make certain decisions? Well, it, I don't think it should be, but it is a hard thing to resist. I mean, and I, and I think mm-hmm. that's why it's so important to have patient groups speaking up and saying, you know, we want you know, drugs that work and that are effective and, and, and that are affordable for everybody who needs them. And we want to know what the side effects are before they're put on the market. Um, and and if, you, if you skew the system so those voices are, are shut down or they don't have the, the resources or everybody's listening to the the voices of patients that are funded by drug companies, you know, that's, you know, you've lost one, um, uh, one lever that you have to um, bring policy back to the point where it, sh- where it should be, which is, you know, benefiting sick people and, and being um, money well spent. Well, and and I would hope that um, my money is spent on making the right decision for my health, and not influenced by the the money that it, it's bringing in. And I know that that is a, a factor because things have to be paid for, and and I know it can be a really tricky balance, but. But at the same time, I would want to know when I'm in a situation um, that the decisions being made for me have an influ- are influenced only by what is best for me. Exactly, yeah. And I think that a lot of the groups and the people who speak on behalf of the groups are, I think they really believe they're doing the right thing, but um, because the, the conversations are so skewed, um, it's hard to have a really um, a balanced discussion where all sides are being brought out, and and if it 
if the groups are getting education from the drug companies, and they are, I mean, they, they have webinars and information sessions with the drug companies, um, they have to realize that that's, that's one point of view, but, you know, if, if you go into the medical literature, as, as I did when I researched my book, these these questions are really disputed, um, you know, questions about how useful the drugs are and what they're what they what we should be paying for them so what can you know people listening to this what can we do moving forward well um, I think that just being aware that this is this is a um, that these groups are having an influence and that that influence has to be um, looked at and and I would say has has to be checked in in some ways. For example, they need to be much more open about the fact that they're getting money from drug companies if they are, and uh, there has to be um, um, an effort made to hear from people who have a different point of view, and and to show the whole system of of funding. Um, you know, I, I hope some people will look at my book. I know it's, you know, it's not it's not something you can read in um, two hours, but it's. Um, it, I think it'll give you a flavor of of what's what's happened at the at the level of the groups. Well, you know, your your book is, uh, as you said, you can't read it in two hours, but um, it is laid out in a way that is fairly easy to read, and I think important. And as you said, this is a not just affecting the breast cancer industry; it's affecting any any advocacy group that is taking funding from the pharmaceutical industry. And um, I, it, it seems from what you're saying, they should be separate so that we can, um, you know, have that information that that we need it without being yeah. biased. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would like to see some others. I mean, if there were sources of, of fun, funding from drug companies um, in the early 90s when we started up many of the groups in Canada. I would like to see us go back to a system where there are other sources of funding. It might not, government funding might not be the best way, but there are um ways that money might come from foundations or from um, health insurance companies. I mean, there are different strategies being looked at or or put money into a neutral pot where um, it's being administered by people other than drug companies. Um, So there, there does need to be, if we're going to have advocacy groups and patient groups that are having a, you know, a, a really, um, positive effect on policy, I think there has to be another source of funding so that people don't just say, well, we have to go to the drug companies because that's the only way we can get money to function. Um, Yeah, exactly. Now, um, is there any way that people can, uh, well, how do people find your your book if they're wanting more information on this? Uh, Well, they can go onto the website of UBC Press, which published it, um, it's fairly easy to find and put in the, 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 the name um, Breast Cancer or, or Health Advocacy Inc. or just put in Health Advocacy Inc. and, and um, you know you can get it through Amazon and other other sources too. Um, ask your bookstore, ask your library. I would love to see the book be in libraries. I know not everybody might want to buy it, but I'd like to have it publicly available to anybody who wants to read it. 
Uh, well, I agree, and I, I want to thank you so much for um, bringing this this um, issue to light and for joining me today and discussing it. Thank you, Rebecca. I really enjoyed uh, being on your show. <laughs> And I want to thank everybody for listening. Today we were speaking with Sharon Batt, and the book was Health Advocacy Incorporated, How Pharmaceutical Funding Changed the Breast Cancer Industry. So be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 